Do you all know what a, what a catechism is? It's a, it's a series of, of questions and answers that are typically used to help guide and instruct people in the faith. And certain uh, Christian faith traditions use catechisms to help people to, to know and to, to learn some of the basics of the faith. And one of those is called the Westminster Catechism, and it begins with the question. The very first question that this catechism asks is, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose for human beings? And does anyone know how to answer this question? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Today we're going to look at what is known as the parable of the talents. It's a story about a man who goes away on a trip and who leaves his servants in charge of his possessions. And he returns and he finds out that two of those servants were good stewards of what he had been given and that one of them was not. There are certain parables that we listen to that have become very familiar with us. And sometimes we need to unlearn what we thought those parables were about in order to get to uh, the real or the deeper or a different message for us at different points in our life. And this has definitely happened for me this week as I prepared this sermon. As uh, Shane mentioned earlier, Michael Hendricks, who was going to be our speaker for yesterday and then for the Sunday morning, uh, got COVID this week and he was not able to come. And so uh, as I was coming towards the end of the week, you know, usually I have kind of a certain routine of how I prepare sermons. And so on Friday morning, I was still wondering, what am I going to preach on this Sunday? And uh, by Sunday afternoon, felt like there was a real switch in my mind about what this parable was about that I think opened a door for me to understand it better for my own life, and I hope will help you as well. Uh, Just as a reminder of where we are in Matthew, uh, before we read this parable, we're in the last week of Jesus's life, and um, and he's been talking back and forth with the Jewish religious leaders at this time. And um, then in chapter 24, Jesus gives a long teaching about what's going to happen when he returns. And in the following chapter, in chapter 25, Jesus gives a series of parables about how followers should act in the meantime, between his first coming and his second coming. So after talking about his return at the end of chapter 24, there's this story about a man who, who goes away and he leaves his servant with his property and the servant wastes all of it. He, he parties and he gets drunk and he wastes all of it. And this, the master comes back and things don't end well for that servant. Last week, we looked at the story of the 10 bridesmaids who were waiting for a wedding to begin and about how five of them were wise and had prepared themselves for the coming of the groom, and about how five of them were foolish and who were found unprepared. Jesus also, at the end of chapter 25, tells a story about the coming judgment when he returns to separate the sheep and the goats. And then he tells this story also about the talents, which is what we're going to look at today. And each of these parables are stories about how we are called to live between the first and second coming of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, our Lord, has been crucified and risen, and he is coming again. Amen? And so how should we live in this in-between time as we wait for his return? Our Lord has a good purpose for this time. 
and a good purpose for the gifts and the resources that he gives to us. And this story about the, the parable of the talents is this story about a master who goes away and gives his servants some of his resources to take care of. And the purpose of this story, what I want to say today, is that the reason that the master gives his servant these resources, the reason why God gives us time and money and gifts is so that we would learn to enjoy God forever. What is the chief end of being human? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Back in the 90s, there was a a book that came out by John Piper that me and a lot of my friends really enjoyed. It was called Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. Has anyone read that book? A few of you have. In that book, Piper takes the question and answer of the first question of the Westminster Confession, and he changes it a bit. Rather than saying that the answer to the question of what is the chief end of man to enjoy, glorify God and enjoy him forever, what he says is this, is that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Piper puts his finger on something important here that I think is an important part of the message of the parable of the talents that we're going to look at today. That God, our master, is infinitely enjoyable. And he made us to find our joy and our delight and our satisfaction in him. God is infinitely enjoyable. And we have been made to find our joy and our delight and our satisfaction in him. So let's read the parable. Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 14. Jesus says, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And so I was afraid and I went out and took and hid my talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. The master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you know that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. 
Well, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the first thing that we need to talk about here is, is what is, is a talent? And a talent was a large sum of money. There are some scholars who suggest that it might have been as much as a year's wages. Other scholars think that it was much more than that. It was probably like five years or ten years of wages. And I think that the reason why there's some differences as scholars read you know, literature about how the word talent was used at this time, I think the reason why there's some differences is that that a talent may have been just shorthand for a lot of money. It may have been used in a similar way that we would say a million bucks. It's, if Jesus were telling the story today, I think that that's what he would say, that he gave one servant five million bucks and another servant two million and the last servant one million. A talent was shorthand or an idiom for a huge sum of money. It may have had a a specific amount tied to it, but that's not the point. The point is the master was generous and he gave his servants a huge sum of money for them to handle. Even the one who just had one talent was given billions of dollars. Some translations, modern translations today now say just a bag of gold, which I think is really a good way to translate talent. It's just a huge sum of money. One got five bags of gold, one got two bags of gold, and one got one bag of gold. The second thing that I want you to know or to notice, and I think that this is really an important part of the main point that I want us to hear today, is that Jesus tells us who this parable is is about. The parable is about a man going on a journey who entrusts his wealth to his servants. The parable is not first about the three servants who had a master who went on a journey. They are secondary characters in the story. The focus of the parable is the master. The focus of this story is not first about the three servants, but about the master. And I've always read this with a focus on the servants. And we do this in other parables as well, uh, probably most famously in the story of the prodigal son. Jesus says that it begins that parable by saying there was a man who had three sons. The focus of the story, our first attention is on the man in the story who had two sons. Of course, we have lots to learn about the way that those sons related to the father in that story. And in the same way, we have lots to learn about the way that these three servants relate to their master. But we have to focus first on what this story says about the master. What is the character of the master? And I think that if we begin with thinking about the servants, we we kind of go on a trail and we never get back to the character of the master. And recently, I just want to say that in my own life, and as I said at the beginning of this sermon, on Friday afternoon, had a different perspective on this story that helped open some things up for me. Because I've actually been using this parable and talking to people as they're asking me how I'm doing, as they're asking about me about my own spiritual life and the things that I'm wrestling with with God. 
I've been using this parable, I've been saying something like this. That I sometimes feel like in my life that I am a person who has received, like the one who received five talents. I feel like I've been given so much. And I haven't buried all of it, but I feel like I've buried like two or three of them. And I've just been using two of them. And so I've been challenged in that way. And I think there's some good in that. But I don't think that that's the purpose of this parable. And the Lord this week has been kind in showing me a new perspective on this parable. I think we need to begin where Jesus begins in this parable, and that is with the character of the master. The parable is not first about the servants, it's about the master. And so we focus on coming first to know better the master of this story, and then from that work out how we respond to the master as we consider the things that we've been given. And this subtle reshifting or refocus away from the servants in this story and to focusing on the character of the master in this story has opened this whole parable up for me. This parable, I suggest to you, is about our good and gracious and infinitely enjoyable God. Our infinitely enjoyable God who has invited us to come and to enjoy him forever. This story is about who God is toward us. This story is about how God is toward those of us who are God's servants. It's about his goodness, about his generosity, about his joy and happiness. It's a parable about how much God enjoys us, about how he entrusts us with good things because he wants to be with us, because he wants to give us responsibility in the life of his kingdom. It's a story about how God wants us to grow up, to take on authority, to grow up in maturity so that he can relate to us in a deeper and more intimate and more interesting levels. For sure, there is plenty of warning in this story about squandering our gifts, and we will get to that at the end. There's plenty to consider about how the master responds to the wicked and lazy servant. But before we get to focusing on our failures or how we can be more like the first two servants and less like the third servant, before we get there, Ryan, let's consider and start with where Jesus starts, with the character of the master. With that in mind, let me reread the first half of this parable. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money. To another, two talents. Let's start over. To one, he gave $5 million. To another, he gave $2 million. And to another, $1 million, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received $5 million went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two million gained two more. But the man who had received the one million went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five million brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five million. See, I have gained five million more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. 
The man with the two million also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two million. See, I have gained two million more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. What do we learn about the character of the master in this story? The first is that the master knows his servants. When the master comes to his servants, how does he decide how much to give each one? Each one according to their ability. He knows his servants well. He has watched them. He has observed them. He knows what they're good at and what they're not good at. He knows their ability. He knows what they're capable of. And he gives to each one of them according to what he knows about them. The master isn't playing favorites here. He is giving them responsibility according to what they can handle. In two weeks, our oldest daughter, Gloria, turns 15. I'm going to start getting in a car and teaching her how to drive. And I could insert the cliche about how nervous I am, but that's actually not the way I feel about it. I'm excited and proud of her for the young woman that she is becoming. I'm watching her grow up and I'm watching how I believe that she can handle this responsibility. I'm about to give her this responsibility because I believe that she can handle it, because I believe that she has the ability to do it. I'm not doing that for Abraham yet. He is seven. And I would get arrested and go to jail. But even more importantly, I'm not doing it because he's seven and he can't handle that responsibility. The first thing we see about the master here is that he knows his servants. He is aware of their capacity. He's aware of what they can handle and he gives them what he knows that they can handle. The master knows his servants. Secondly, this master is full of joy. When the master comes home and finds what the first two servants have done with this money, he is thrilled. And notice, it has nothing to do with the fact that he's gained seven million more dollars. It's about them. And it's about this relationship that has grown because of the way that they have rightly stewarded the resources that he gave to them. At the end of the story, we find out that he actually lets the faithful servants just have the bags of gold. He just lets them have it all. He's not concerned about the return on investment. What he is delighted in is the relationship that's grown. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. Come and share in your master's joy. Come, let's celebrate together. Let's be together. Let's have fun. I'm glad to be with you. That's what Michael Hendricks would have told us God thinks about us if he was here this week. That he's glad to be with us. That he's proud of us. Their faithfulness with his money becomes an invitation for them to celebrate together. Come share in my joy. Come share in the joy of your master. Their success isn't about their success. Their success is about the relationship with the master. It's an opportunity for them to experience joy together. It's an opportunity for them to grow in their relationship together. The third thing we hear about the character of the master 
is that the master is interested in their maturity. The master is going on a trip, and he sees this as an opportunity to give more authority, to give more responsibility to his servants. He's a good leader that knows that people grow when they're given more opportunity, more authority, more responsibility. And so he takes this moment when he has to go away on a trip to give them an opportunity to grow. And the master is willing to take some risks with his resources in order to give his servants an opportunity to grow. He puts them in charge of millions of dollars, and he does this as an opportunity to see what they'll do with it so that they can grow and mature. I've had some thought recently about God's interest in our maturity and our growth. And I've had this realization recently that I don't think that God is a detached observer to our growth, but he, certainly he helps us in our growth, but he's also very interested in it. He wants for it to happen. And not just, not just so that we can like be better servants or be better prayers or better worship leaders or preachers or whatever, that he is interested in our maturity because he enjoys interacting with people who are mature. Think about this again as a parent and about playing games with my kids as they get older. There is nothing more mind-numbing than a game of Candyland. You shuffle the cards, you put them on the board, and the game is already decided. There's no choices at that point of what can be made. The game has been decided. But yesterday, Evangeline, our 10-year-old, smoked me in a game of five crowns. It's a game of rummy-like game. She absolutely creamed me. Joy, who's 12, beats me every time that we play. And I can pretend that because this is a card game, it has some luck in it. But when you beat me every time, you're just better at it than me. And that's saying something because I am really good at games. Like really, really, really good at games. And my kids are consistently beating me. And of course, I have to act like I'm real bothered about it and real irritated and annoyed. And on the scorecard, wrote a big boo and underlined it because she beat me but I'm delighted that my kids are growing and can thump me in these games. I want to be careful not to stretch this analogy too far. God delights in all of us, those who are very new and immature in the faith, as well as those of us who are far along and growing. But I think there's something important in this analogy. God is interested in our growth, not just because of the good work that we can then do because of it, but because as we get more mature, he is able to relate with us in deeper levels and more intimate levels than we could before. And I think that that's a wonderful and beautiful thing to consider about why God is calling us to maturity, why Jesus, God wants us to become more Christ-like, is so that we can relate to him better, so we can be more and more intimate with him and so that he can enjoy us more. So I just want to pause here and just encourage you to think about what is it like for you to think about this parable in this way? If the master in some way is related to God and that we in some ways are representative of the servants, what does this teach you about what God is like toward you? What's it like to know that God knows your ability, that he knows what you're capable of? 
that he knows what you're good at, that he's paid attention to you and he's watched you and he knows. And the things that come along in your life are opportunities for him to get to know you better and for you to get to know him better. What's it like to think about our God being a God who is full of joy? God is full of happiness. And what he wants to do over and over again is to invite us into his happiness. That's what the master says here. Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm gonna give you charge of lots of things. Now come and enjoy my joy. Come and share in my happiness. What's it like for you to consider that part of his purposes for you to grow in maturity is so that you can come to know and relate to him better and in a deeper way. This is the character of our master. Okay, let's look at the other side of this story. Let's read again the story of the third servant, beginning in verse 24. The man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have at least put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him. Give it to the one who has 10 talents for everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When we read this story and we think about this servant, we think about that his problem was that he hid his talent in the ground. And I just want to suggest to you that that is a symptom of a problem that this man had before. And that is that he did not know the master. He mischaracterizes the master. There is nothing in this story up to this point that would make us agree with his words and his characterization of the master, that he's a hard and wicked man and that he steals. There's nothing in this story about the master in that way. He's generous. He's kind. He wants wants the servants to come and to enjoy him. And the second problem that he has is that he was deliberate with his actions. The master calls him wicked and lazy. The word wicked here is not passive. It's not that this man has slowly become bad over time. Wicked is a person who is deliberate in their actions. And there is a decision here that this servant makes to despise his master's gift a decision to not cherish it or to be bothered with the responsibility that come from receiving it. He is wicked and lazy. He has made a decision to deliberately ignore what he knows could or needs to be done. The actions, his actions are a symptom of this problem that he does not know the character of the master. And because of that, he has no respect or care or concern for the master or the master's business. He has no interest in growing in relationship with the master at all. Who would want to grow in a relationship with somebody who's hard and who's difficult and who steals things? Nobody. He's no interest in maturing and taking responsibility as someone in the master's house. 
And because of that attitude toward the master, the master is furious. The master is not furious because he didn't earn another bag of gold. The master doesn't care about the bag of gold. The master is furious because the servant neglects the relationship that's offered to him. And God will not keep anyone in his house who does not want to be there. Darkness, lack of light, lack of joy, lack of celebration and relationship with God is ready and waiting for everyone who chooses that path. Anyone who insists on making God into someone who he is not, who willfully believes wrong things about God, there is no place in the master's house for someone like that. There's no place in the master's house for someone who deliberately despises the master's gifts because they don't want the master's gifts. They don't want the master in his relationship with him. And so the master says, here's the door. Parables like this and many others, as we read the master's response to this third servant, does place in us, should place in us an appropriate fear of the Lord. The book of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus says that we do not need to fear men who can only harm our bodies, but we need to fear the one who can throw both body and soul into hell, into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is an appropriate fear of the Lord to acknowledge who we are in relationship to our maker and Lord and the king of the universe. The fear of the Lord is the place where wisdom begins. It puts us in this right position of understanding ourselves as humble servants of the Lord of the universe. But the fear of the Lord is not the place where wisdom and relationship with the Lord ends. It's only where it begins. 1 John 4, 18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. The parable of the bags of gold is not given to us so that we fear and fret that we have not squeezed out every ounce of our talent for the work of ministry. The parable is about knowing the character of the master, to know that he knows us and is using all things in our life to cause us to grow and to mature so that we can fully share and delight in his happiness so that we can grow and be made perfect in love. The gifts, the resources, the talents and money that he has given you are an opportunity for you to grow in love with the master. And he has given them to you because he loves you and because he wants all things to be an occasion for you to glorify him by enjoying him today and forever. God, we thank you that you are this kind of master that you are kind and gracious, that you are generous, that you desire to invite us into your happiness, to invite us into your joy. God, I pray that we would know you in this sort of way, that we would recognize who you are as, as Lord and King, would have an appropriate fear and honor and reverence, that we would take with great humility the gifts and resources that you give to us, and seek your help and how to use those well. And that through that relationship that you would help us to grow deeper into our knowledge of you that finds its end in love. And God, I pray that we would know it 
and that we would receive this relationship that you invite us into. Amen.